So we have been in this series um, for the last couple of weeks called The Pursuit. Um, the Pursuit is a walk through the tabernacle. Um, if you've got your smartphones with you, um, you can scan the QR code on the screen that's behind me right now, or you can just go to the link northwood.church slash notes. And what you'll do is you get an abbreviated um, outline of the message notes that we'll be sharing off of. A lot of it is the notes that you'll see on the screen as well, but you can follow along. The only thing I ask is that you don't go ahead. Like if you start preaching my notes before I get there, it's not good for you, me, or anybody else because uh, I might not even go there. I don't know, but um, I would encourage you to follow along. But what we're doing is we are walking through the tabernacle and what we're learning is we're not just learning the history of the Bible, we're learning the heart of God, but at the same time we're learning how the patterns and the principles that, that God gave the children of Israel and God's people um, are still completely applicable today. And the first week we talked about really God's heart with the tabernacle. It wasn't to create this list of do's and don'ts so that he could rule and reign and he could just be this, this mean governing system. No, he created this so he could be close to his people. In Exodus chapter 25, the instruction came and said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst so that I can be close to them. Dwell in their midst. He says, I want to be close to them, so let's make a spot where I can be close. The heart of God being shown in Exodus 25 verse 8 and 9. And he says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, this is how you need to make it. The first week was all about the heart of God. Last week, we got into what was considered the, the outer courts. The outer courts was this courts really focused on, on removing the barrier of sin from God's people so that he could draw near so that people could draw near to God and God could be close to them. And what happens oftentimes in Christianity is we become satisfied living in the outer courts. Some people just stay here in their relationship with God. Some people just stay in, okay, I'm going to repent of my sin and I'm going to cleanse my hands. And they are satisfied, and in a lot of ways, it's just because it's, it's all they've known, it's all they've ever expected. They're satisfied with this knowing about God and this kind of transactional detail taking place in their life. But the tabernacle reveals, and God's heart would say and suggest that there is more for you. There is much more, and the tabernacle shows that because what happens is, Past the outer courts, there's this place called the holy place, which is where we're going to discuss a little bit today. We're not actually going to get all the way through the holy place today, but we are going to enter in to the holy place. You'll see here we're actually going to take, take two of the items that are inside this, but this, after the outer courts, you would have walked through this curtain, and this is what would have been seen. Three things in the holy place. The holy place for us today, but even for the tabernacle, what it did was it, it taught people. But today it teaches us how to go from being an acquaintance of Jesus to being in fellowship with him. 
Have you ever heard that, like a relationship with God, and then sometimes it's like, I don't actually understand what that means. To have a relationship with God, what does that mean? But today, we are going to go a little bit further, and I think the holy place teaches this remarkably well. Now, in the tabernacle, the holy place was reserved for a special group of people. The holy place, remember in the outer courts, really anybody could go in there and sacrifice were made. Like uh, if you were uh, the children of Israel, you could go in the outer courts, but the holy place was reserved strictly for priests. Priests um, would have been Levites. Um, It's just, it's a, a family line. And specifically the priests, the people that could go inside the holy place being Levites, and they had to be of Aaron's uh genealogy. It had to be a son or grand, like a male descendant of Aaron. And this was the group of people that were called priests. These priests had responsibilities. It's funny when you look at all, I mean, there's over a million people that would have been around this place and everybody kind of had their part to play. But the Levites are uh, the priests had specific responsibilities, their responsibilities inside the tabernacle was they were the ones that were offering or performing the sacrifice. They, they were like, I think about our Ocean Springs location that's set up and tear down every single week. Like it's, it's a nod to them, you know? It's like every single week before anything ever took place, they were the responsible party to make sure the environment was set. I'm aware that oftentimes in church, that there's this temptation to say, hey, that's the pastor's responsibility. That's the pastor. That's his job. That's what he does. And really, as I was preparing for this message, I wanted to take a moment just to tell you guys thank you because that's really not the culture of our church. The culture of our church is that everybody plays a part. Everybody takes on responsibility. Everybody has this bit of ownership. That's, that's actually one of the reasons that before I got into the message today, I was, I was talking about, I was talking about that class, knew it in C. And the reason I was talking about that is because I actually believe that we have a biblical responsibility to kind of take on some of this ownership, not just for the organization, but for the individual. In the Old Testament, we see in the tabernacle, the priests having the primary role of all of these things that took place in the holy place. But in the New Testament, it begins to talk about us as believers. Now, I need to make a clear delineation here. Just because you attend a church doesn't mean that you are a priest. It doesn't mean that you're a believer either. You can can be around something and not be a participant in that something that you are around. But for those who have surrendered their life to Jesus, who have, who have made him Lord and Savior of their life, categorically, according to the Bible, it says, now that you are in Christ, you are priests. It says it like this in 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. People who are found in Christ are now of the, of the lineage of the The genealogy of these priests that we're talking about right here says you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Oh, remember that you were once in darkness and he called you into marvelous 
light. With that being the reality of those of you who have surrendered your life to Christ in this room, in the lobby, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you are now a priest. And as priests entered the holy place, because they can, because they're supposed to, they would experience what's inside of the holy place. When you walked through kind of the curtain, you went from this natural light place to this spot. And the first thing that you would see when you walked in would have just been this light place. Is it possible to go back to just that one picture for just a second? That's what you would have seen. Now, walking into that I don't know where your eyes naturally gravitate towards. But you have to understand for a minute, the first thing you actually see, knowingly or unknowingly, is the light that's present inside of the holy place. Because without the light, it's just dark. If I turned out all the lights in this room, and then one person in here put on their flashlight on their phone all of us would instantly go, light. In this place, the first thing that you would see was light. And that light was provided by the golden lampstand. This golden lampstand that is symbolic in a lot of ways, you still see it in a lot of different places, but this golden lampstand was extremely specific of the way that it needed to be built and they're saying in different things what they might represent, um, which a lot of it, I, I really believe it's just hard for me to say this is absolutely true. But I mean, when you start looking at the different articles on each and the different buds and the almonds that are on this thing, there, there's some really amazing things that are taking place right there. But on the lampstand, you can see this for a fact that there were these seven branches. There was three on the right, three on the left, and one on the center. And... Um, on each of these seven branches, there was a, a lamp on top of each one of the branches. In the holy place, the priests, one of their responsibilities was is that they would fill each one of those lamps or each one of those bowls on top of the lampstand with oil and they would light them. That would be the only light in the holy place. This wasn't just because they're like, man, it's dark in here. We got to get some light up in here. This was instruction from the Lord yet again in Leviticus 24. The Lord speaks to Moses and he says this. He says, uh, command the people of Israel to bring pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. I don't know if you've ever tried to navigate a dark place. I'm guilty oftentimes, so I'm the kind of guy, purifier that's got that one random little blue light in there. I cover it with electrical tape. Like, I don't want to see any light at all. Now, the problem is, the middle of the night, if you got to get up for whatever reason, I refuse to turn on any lights. And regardless of how well I know my room, of how familiar I am, darkness does weird things to you. So now also when you're asleep still, like you're like, where is, I can't tell you how many times I've broken a toe. That's, that's no joke. I'm like, bam. I'm like, oh man, I did it again. But it's because darkness is so 
hard, if not impossible, to navigate. A world without light is grim. It's hopeless. Imagine living in a world like that. Well, obviously we have the sun come up and it provides light and it illuminates the physical world for us, but the Bible paints a picture that the world that we live in spiritually is a very dark place. It's hopeless. But a lampstand. Imagine if there was just a lampstand everywhere you went that illuminated, like spiritually speaking, if there was a lampstand that was always going in front of you that would illuminate the world so that you would have nothing to fear, that hope would be present, that darkness would be dispelled. Well, Jesus in John chapter eight emphatically speaks to the people. And it says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The confidence that comes to those who have followed Jesus, not even the confidence, it's the promise that comes to those who have followed Jesus, is that Jesus is the light in a dark world. Jesus is the beacon of hope. He is that that signal that cries out in darkness and says there's life, there's hope, there's victory. He's the one who shines in the midst of darkness. He's the one that, that bursts through sin, that removes the pain of evil, that takes away darkness. Jesus is the lampstand. And as the tabernacle would reveal this lampstand, Jesus was the lampstand. Remember, God's heart was to be close to his people and what the lampstand does for us is it reminds us that Jesus not only was, but Jesus is the light of the world that, that illuminates the path for believers. Jesus is the one that dispels darkness. He is around. Following Jesus does say that even though darkness is around, there is a light in the midst of it. The lampstand. And the lampstand we just talked or we read in Leviticus that it says, hey, there needs to be oil in these lamps. Oil all throughout the Bible is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Understand that when Jesus gave his life up as a, a sacrifice or an offering for our sin, Jesus defeated death. He paid the price that we all owed. And when he resurrected and went to heaven with God the Father, he promised everyone, he says, the Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit is with us even right now. Though you can't see it, the effects of the Holy Spirit are all around. And for a believer, the Holy Spirit is the one that teaches us the truth of God. That when we read the word of God and it, it bears witness within our taking because our brains are simply figuring out it's because the Holy Spirit is taking scales off our eyes and revealing truth to us. The truth of the word of God is revealed through the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit guides us into the wisdom of God. You ever been in one of those situations where you have, it's a fork in the road. 
before you surrendered your life to Jesus, the fork in the road, you were completely, you never even saw it. Like it wasn't, I'm just, I'm doing what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it, and I'm totally fine. But was it for you like it was for me? I gave my life to Jesus and all of a sudden the things that I once did and had no problem with, the moment I surrendered my life to Jesus, all of a sudden something was like awoken inside of me that said, hey, stop for a second. Is that the route you should go? Is that, is that, is that what you need to do? I'd read the word of God and it's like, hold on, it's correcting me. It's the wisdom of God. That's again, not just because I'm figuring things out. It's because the Holy Spirit is giving wisdom. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do the work of God. Literally empowers us. The Bible says that when the Spirit of God came upon them in the New Testament, it says that's where miracles took place. That's where the boldness took place. If you've ever been in a situation where you didn't know what to say or how to say it, and you just took a moment, you prayed, said, God, would you give me strength? That was just one of those spots where I found myself that <laughs> this is one of your priestly duties. <laughs> that's, you know what I mean? And I was sitting in my car getting ready to walk into this place that was dark. And I think it's good to say these types of things, by the way. Like, sometimes you're still scared as a believer. I sat in my car, wrestled with fear a little bit, thought, hey, I'm going to leave. Like, they don't know I'm actually coming. <laughs> I just pray, God, would you give me strength? God, would you give me courage to step out of the car first? And then, God, would you give me courage to proclaim truth? And you know what? That fear was present until the moment the door opened. When I made the decision to follow what I needed to do, how I knew I needed to do it, it's like this grace just came. This grace that was peace, that was comfort, but also there was a courage. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is the oil that we talk about the Holy Spirit it comforts us with the peace of God. I was at a funeral this week uh, with a church member, a family member had passed away. And I watched this lady walk into a funeral of her granddaughter. And I watched, literally, I walked beside her when she was going to see her. And I watched the peace of God fall over her life. No joke. Me and a couple other friends literally walked with her. And I watched this grace and this mercy that is indescribable just rest on her life. That's the Holy Spirit. Is this not man-made. That's not fabricated in our own strength. This is the oil in the lamp. This is the Holy Spirit, it helps us to know the person of Jesus. And ultimately, the oil or the Holy Spirit is what fills us with the light of God so that we could be beacons of hope in our communities, in our church, in our schools, in our homes. That is what fills us. John 14 says this, it says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. This is Jesus talking. He says, I'm going to ask God, and he's going to give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, 
for he dwells with you. Just a system to understand. Christianity is about a person to know. Don't forget Leviticus, though. The priests had a responsibility to keep that lampstand full. This is where sometimes you feel dry. That's part of Christianity. You know, I, I don't know what the idea is that we're always going to be up and to the right in our walk with God. Sometimes there are plateau seasons, and sometimes there are, can I say it, dips? We're just, it's dry seasons. But as priests, as followers of Jesus, you, I, we have a responsibility in those moments to fill the lampstand. This isn't a salvation question. It's not like, oh, I'm not saved anymore because I'm feeling dry. No, it's lean into the presence of God. Pursue the promises of God. Continue to ingest the word of God. Put myself in environments where I am filled up. Oftentimes our greatest failure or flaw as Christians is we run from the very things that feed us. Because of what? because we've just gotten used to it, <laughs> because it's out of sight, out of mind. No, this is the life of a Christian, is keeping the lampstand full. The tabernacle had the lampstand, and it was the light to the whole thing. It was the light of the world. The, the second thing, and this will be the last thing that we talk about today. There's no way we get all the way through the holy place. Just so you guys know, we extended this message series one week because as we were studying, we were like, we need to give this the right amount of time. <laughs> Again, we could have made it a year, but we chose to just make it five weeks. But the next thing that you would see is what's called the table of showbread. You see the picture behind me, and there's really a couple different parts to this. You see the, the stacks of cake on it or the bread, but you also see the table that is present there. When you think about a table, the fact that God would say, put a table in this place to hold this bread and a couple other things, put a table in place. When you think about a table, it is so symbolic. It's so representative of fellowship. What happens at your table at your house? I can tell you what your table was designed for. I don't know if it actually takes place. But your, but your table was built so that people could gather around. So that fellowship could take place. So that community could be present. So that the spirit of hospitality would reign around the table. Again, meals in the Old Testament and even in biblical times, the table was essence. Meals weren't 15-minute feeding sessions, meals were two or three hours where you would gather around, you would eat, you would know one another, you would enjoy being around each other. There is a table in the holy place where God is saying, I'm going to fellowship with my people. I am not a distant God that you cannot know. I have a table in the most holy places so that you can know me and I can know you. Fellowship and hospitality, and on this table, there was the bread that was there. There was also either like bowls or cups that would have been on there. They were, they were dishes of some sort that were used to facilitate drink offerings that were instructed in Numbers chapter 28. 
So you'd have this table set with some bread and with some, what Numbers 28 calls, strong drink. You see the picture behind me have the bread. Looks like pancakes. You're like, that doesn't look like my bunny bread. (laughs) This bread would have been a little bit different, but Scripture would say there were 12 pieces of bread. There were 12 cakes in two stacks with six on each stack. These loaves would have represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, God's people, 12 tribes of Israel. The priest's responsibilities here was that this bread was to be replaced every Sabbath. So it wouldn't stay there all the time, but this bread was replaced every single Sabbath. Um, The old loaves, they were eaten by the priests. So, hey, we're a priest. We get to eat. (laughs) Praise God. But they would be eaten in the holy place. And that bread was actually what would sustain life. We think to ourselves, like, bread to us is like, on the side. Like we don't need, like bread is just what you get with spaghetti and sometimes you eat it and sometimes you don't. Then it was, it was, it's funny when you read commentaries, some commentaries literally just say it was real bread. You start to study it a little bit and it it, it was more than likely unleavened, but the nutrients that were inside of this bread literally could sustain life. That's actually all you needed was this bread. It had It had the essentials to keep your body functioning well. Like, we're like, where can I get that bread? Like, this type of bread was told to be put on this table. And what it was saying was that that God was, and can I tell you this? God is. He was and he is. Israel, he was telling his people, hey, I've got you. I'm all you actually need for your life, but also for nourishment. This is all that you actually need. So often we feel that if I just had this, then I'd be complete. If I could just get this, and when we say it like this, we feel so shallow, but this is really where we live. If we could just get to this amount in our bank account, we'll be fine. If I, could just, if I could just open my pantry and see this amount of food. If I could just have, if I could just this. And God is saying, this is all you actually need. He's saying, I've got you. My table. I'm telling you, I'm your nourishment. I'm your source of life. I'm what you need. And then in the New Testament, in John chapter 6, Jesus tells his closest friends, he says, I am the bread. What's amazing is these people would have heard stories of religious practices and the tabernacle and all of this type of stuff. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, they weren't thinking about the bunny bread. They were thinking about the show bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, they shall not hunger. I'll take that from them. And he says, whoever believes in me, they'll never thirst. Jesus eternally satisfied that which the world could not. He's saying, follow me. 
It's not a promise that there won't, it's not a promise that there will be this amount of money in the bank. It's not a promise that when you open your pantry doors, that there will be all this food. But it is a promise that the eternal side of your life is solidified, is promised, is guaranteed through the author and the finisher and the nourisher of life in Christ and Christ alone. In the tabernacle, the table of of showbread clearly shows us what today we call and celebrate as communion. The bread, the wine, the grape juice for us. Bread and wine symbolize Jesus being the bread of life, being the, the nourishment of life, being the source of life that would be broken. That bread, follow me here. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And for us to experience fellowship with him, he had to be broken. He says, if that's what it takes, if it takes breaking of bread for fellowship to be present and I am the bread, he says, I will break so that fellowship can exist. The bread and the wine symbolize Jesus being the bread of life that we've broken and the drink offering, his blood poured out for the sins of mankind. For us in this room or in the lobby, we have eternal life and we are in fellowship. We are in covenant through Christ and we see that so clear through those two articles in the tabernacle. 